My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Susan Campbell and Angie Lynch. By this point, Most of us are well aware of at least the broad outlines of the many and varied impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. There are, of course, the health impacts of the virus itself. There are the job losses. There are all of the ways it has reshaped work, education, socializing, and innumerable other aspects of everyday life. And there are the big-picture impacts on politics and the economy. How much any one of us has been touched by all of this varies a lot, often in ways that correspond to the major inequities and injustices that already shape our lives and communities, but overall, the impacts have been profound. And what it will look like to recover from those impacts remains to be determined. Susan Campbell trained as a social worker, and she works as a community legal worker, public educator, and community organizer for the Lake Country Community Legal Clinic in Bracebridge, Ontario. Community legal clinics in Ontario are non-profit organizations that offer a wide range of legal support to low-income people, and many also engage in related community-based organizing and law reform advocacy. Much of Campbell's grassroots work over the last four decades has been related to the many ways in which the social safety net in Canada has holes and gaps and barriers. All too often it fails to support people who need it, and has other kinds of unjust impacts on people. Early on in the pandemic, Campbell was listening to a media conference with Dr. Teresa Tam, the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada. Dr. Tam talked about how the pandemic was uncovering these inadequacies in the social safety net. It struck Campbell as an important marker of our political moment that the most important public health official in the country was openly acknowledging this problem. As the pandemic developed, more and more people had to depend on the social safety net, and more and more people came face to face with its limitations. As well, related issues started getting more mainstream media attention. It was, Campbell decided, a perfect time to start a campaign for a recovery from the pandemic that fixes the shortfalls of the social safety net. That is, for a just recovery. She got a lot of interest in the idea from other legal clinic workers, as well as people involved in labor groups, women's organizations, housing advocacy groups, and so on. It was at this stage that Angie Lynch got involved. She's also a social worker, and she works for the Kinaawea Legal Clinic in Thunder Bay, Ontario, as their ID services coordinator. As the Just Recovery Ontario campaign took shape, they decided to focus on five areas. They want the province to make the social assistance system adequate and accessible, which it currently is not. They're calling for a $15 an hour minimum wage and improved basic employment standards, including access to employer-funded sick days. They're demanding major new government investment in building affordable housing, as well as real rent control. They want improved and more stable funding for affordable, accessible, quality basic services, like childcare, elder care, and transit. And they're demanding more just and equitable tax policies to stop corporations and the richest individuals from paying less than their fair share. As many groups on this show have observed over the last six months, pandemic-related restrictions have made organizing more challenging. Many of the ways that the Just Recovery Ontario campaign is calling on people to take action involve making use of online tools. They encourage people to sign up for their regular email updates and calls to action, which allow them to mobilize public responses to issues related to their core demands as circumstances evolve. 
They also hope people make use of the tools they provide on their website that make it easier to share information, put pressure on politicians, and engage with the media. And they're asking for individuals and groups to endorse the campaign. I speak with Campbell and Lynch about the gaps and barriers in the social safety net, about how those have become more evident during the COVID-19 pandemic, and about the Just Recovery Ontario campaign. My name's Susan Campbell. I went to school for social work and was doing a master's degree. Uh And I got a placement at Parkdale Community Legal Services. And that's where I had the privilege of being mentored by an amazing activist by the name of Nelson Clark. He had actually just officially retired, but continued organizing when I got to the clinic. And he'd been organizing since the 1930s. And he had a lot to teach me about organizing from very much the perspective of, you know, it's got to come from people's experience and making a way for the voices of that experience to be heard. So that's where I started from. And I've worked in legal clinics ever since and been an organizer ever since in all kinds of different campaigns. The Just Recovery Ontario campaign idea started a few months ago, and what we're really looking for is that our new normal needs to be a just normal that recognizes all of the shortfalls in Canada's social safety net. And if we're going to rebuild, we need to rebuild and fix those. And the reason for doing it now is that as an organizer for 40 years, I have never seen such wide public awareness of the inadequacy of that safety net. So it seems the time to do it. My name is Angie Lynch. I'm in Centre Bay, Ontario. I also graduated from social work. And from there, I went on to work for 26 years at our local Ontario Works Department. Uh, Ontario Works is the portion of the social assistance system in Ontario intended for non-disabled recipients where I worked very closely with people who were living with a very inadequate income and dealing with very systemically unhealthy systems. I started from the inside and tried to organize from the inside at Ontario Works. After 26 years, I moved along because I realized I really wasn't making a lot of inroads. I was helping individuals, but I really wasn't helping in terms of systemic change, which is really what I'm passionate about. So I work for Kina Away Legal Clinic and I'm the ID Services Coordinator. I haven't been an activist for 40 years, but maybe 20 anyways. And I agree with Susan 100% that we really need to look at how we can make things right because obviously they aren't right now. I belong to Poverty Free Thunder Bay and we work on a lot of initiatives to deal with poverty and systemic issues. Right now we're working on a free transit campaign in Thunder Bay. I also work with the Poverty Reduction Strategy in Thunder Bay and we're working on pitching a pilot to the government. I can't get into too many details about that right now. I also am part of a group called Disrupt the Status Quo. Thunder Bay was one of the pilot projects for the basic income pilot in Ontario. And when the basic income pilot project was abruptly stopped after (laughs) promises that it wouldn't be, we started organizing in Thunder Bay and Disrupt the Status Quo started as a result of that, where we're trying to disrupt the status quo, basically exactly what it says. You know, we get so used to things being a certain way that we don't even often look at how they can be different. It sounds like one important piece of context for the Just Recovery Ontario campaign is the long-standing gaps and barriers and inadequacies in our social safety net. What are some of those long-standing limitations, and how have they shown up more sharply in people's lives due to the pandemic? Certainly income is a major one. 
income inadequacy is just so, so huge. People who are working full-time are not making it. I mean, at our minimum wage, you have to have a full-time job, uh, more than full-time job sometimes, to actually get to $2,000 a month income. And in the systems that Angie and I have worked in, we've met lots of people who we know are living on way less than that and struggling and have always struggled. And it's been difficult because nobody wants to hear about that. For years, there's been so much misinformation that the stigma people face, they just don't want to talk about it or there's just a total misunderstanding of what people's lives are like so that you hear very much the old-fashioned, you know, only the deserving should get money and a belief that people would choose to be on benefits instead of working because that's just easy and they're lazy people. Or one of my favorites, young women who have more kids so that they can get more benefits. Well, I always want to ask the people who say things like that. And you would have a child for 120 bucks a month? <laughs> and housing, we've had many, many, many years now of vacancy decontrol in the province of Ontario. And that's not rent control. There's only control of the rent as long as you are a sitting tenant in the same unit. For years, there's been the ability to raise the rent as much as the market will bear between tenants. And that's hugely increased the amount of homelessness and unaffordability of rents. And it's gotten really, really bad because there's less and less rental accommodation available. So the market is really, really expensive. It's shooting the rents way, way up. So those are just a couple of the huge issues, and there's many more. And so this time, there's just been such an awareness of all of this because of the pandemic. When the federal government said that, in their estimation, the minimum a single person should live on is $2,000 a month, and we look around and we see so many people who are nowhere near that. And people who were homeless in some cities were being put up in motels because motels didn't have business during the lockdown. So they were taking homeless people so that people could self-isolate because it's a real problem in homeless shelters. So it just has become a time where people who didn't want to look at these things before and could walk forward and not see them or do anything or think about them, now it's in your face and you don't have a choice. Susan's really nailed a lot of it. The federal government did indicate $2,000 a month is the bare minimum that people need to live on, but a single person on Ontario Works is living on $733 a month, and Doug Ford seems to think that people on disabilities should go get a job. I'm not quite sure if he really even understands what the disability program is all about. So, I mean, the income inadequacies are huge. The poverty line is set at around $22,000 a year. A single person on Ontario Works may make $9,000 a year. I want to just put ourselves in the position of somebody who's living with a very low income. And imagine when the pandemic hit and all of a sudden everything was closed. You couldn't go access any of the community resources that you were used to. Food security, how did you get to the food banks? They all closed. So a poor person experiencing this lockdown of sorts who maybe can't afford even a phone to be able to phone their doctors, to phone for food security, to phone their family, the isolation. I mean, it was just unreal. 
That's just one really small example about the income inadequacies. And then there's also, as Susan said, the lack of housing. And when you're making only like $1,100 a month and rents are $1,500 a month, there's absolutely no way people can afford to live in a healthy way. Why do you think people are more open to talking about these issues at the moment? I think it's affecting a broader cross-section of people. But like on the daily news, there's constant reference to it. Like, The moment it struck me, aside from the federal government thinking everybody should have $2,000 a month, was when Dr. Tam was on television giving one of her reports early on. She said something about how the pandemic had uncovered the inadequacies of our social safety net. I was like, whoa, the top doctor in the country is saying this. You know, that's pretty amazing. I was sort of, as they say, gobsmacked to hear that. I think because so many people who were used to having a regular income suddenly didn't, and they were impacted and started to understand what it means to live with uncertainty around income and food security. I do think that that really helped to increase the awareness. Because when you're used to having your regular monthly income, if you're working full-time, often we don't even stop to think about what it would be like to live on way, way, way less than that. And I think now that people have actually had to experience that, there's more compassion and empathy for folks that have had to be living on a low income for much longer periods of time. We also see in the pandemic a new awareness about the value of workers. We've certainly, right off the bat, saw how we think that all the medical people and healthcare workers are heroes. But you know what? There were a lot of other essential workers who were heroes too, who were out there when, you know, we hardly knew at all what the effects of the virus were. Grocery workers, cleaners, PSWs, truck drivers, all the people out there who have been taken for granted. Workers had actually, under the last provincial government, won three days of sick leave, and that was quickly taken away by the new provincial government. And so there were no sick days, and then the pandemic required that people have two weeks all of a sudden in case somebody had to self-isolate because they had the virus or were suspected to have the virus. Tell me about the process that led to the founding of the Just Recovery Ontario campaign. What were those initial conversations and who was having them? It actually started with me, with what I just said about hearing Dr. Tam, what she had to say about the pandemic and our social safety net. And legal clinics have this group that meets. It's a study group on community organizing and community development in terms of the kinds of issues that legal clinics deal with, which are, you know, income maintenance and housing and human rights and those kinds of things. It's sort of our resource where we talk together about what campaigns we might do. But mostly that committee has been about how do we build our skills base sharing information about projects we've been working on just to help each other out and network. And so we had a meeting coming up and I went to the meeting and I said a lot of the things that I just have said to you and asked if anybody was interested in a campaign. And there were five people at our first meeting about a week and a half later. And at that meeting, we decided we would talk to some of our connections. And the meeting about a week and a half later after that had over 20 people in it, and it just grew from there. It's a wide-ranging membership. We've tried to draw from as many different constituencies that we could think of, labor, women's groups, housing groups, 
anybody we could think of who would be interested in issues of income, housing, better services, and how do we pay for this? That was the one thing is that we had to also talk about how to pay for this because of our fear with what the government was spending that the first opportunity they had they had to cut services because of how much money we've spent. We knew we had to address how, if we were going to get all of these things, would it be paid for? Yeah, and I just got called in. <laughs> Susan called me up and said, hey, you want to join? And I'm like, yep. You were between that five people and the 20 people, I think, and. The five of us all went off and started calling people. Yeah, so that's how we got started. From there, I think everything really came together really nice, eh, Susan? We really had already started identifying the issues way before we started meeting just because of everything that was happening. So when we came together, nailing our five steps came together fairly quickly. That very first meeting was like the end of April. And by May, June, we were actually able to hire somebody to help us because everybody who was coming to the meetings a lot of them were working, many in clinics or at other agencies, and also trying to get voices of people with lived experience involved as well, which we've done, not as much as we'd like, but that's a difficulty. How difficult it is to organize in a pandemic time. Mm-hmm. A lot of us are used to doing this face-to-face organizing, so it's been a challenge to overcome and we continue to work on trying to overcome that. Go into a bit more detail about some of those challenges of doing this work in the middle of the pandemic. The biggest challenge is just being able to get people together. With organizing, often it is about meeting in libraries or church basements or wherever we can meet to get things going. And with the pandemic, that all stopped. A lot of people that we work with, people who have the lived experience that we like to draw into our campaigns, they don't have digital access. They don't have a computer or a phone even for the most part. So they basically went radio silent when the pandemic hit. We weren't able to reach anybody. No email. You know what I mean? So for me, that was the biggest challenge. How do you meet with people who don't have a digital access? So in Thunder Bay, we started a digital access project, a cell phone to people project to help get devices into their hands so that they could not only just connect with us for organizing, but to connect for all the other services that they needed. So that was the biggest challenge. And I think it still is a challenge. It's not just having the equipment. There's huge, huge, huge areas of this province where there's no connectivity. There's dead zones everywhere. So it's not just having the equipment. It's having a place where you can actually use it. We're working on trying to have hotspots so that you can actually take your device somewhere and check your email or be part of a phone call or converse with your doctor or services or whatever that you need. So there's that as well. Also, people might have their device, but they don't have the money all the time to be able to be connected. For a lot of people, when it comes to organizing, part of the appeal is the getting together the social aspects of it, the food that comes with organizing. We try our best to usually have food and beverages and things for people and to help with transportation costs and that sort of thing when we're organizing. And we can't draw people the same way as we were able to over Zoom. So we're trying to be innovative in some of our programs and we might bring food gift certificates to people for participating in things just to kind of try and replicate what we used to be able to do in a slightly different way. Just a little additional piece to that is that it is a social thing. People I've been organizing with are low-income people over various causes and various issues. 
because of their low income, their ability to be involved socially is really curtailed. And so organizing events are a social event and a way to overcome the social isolation. So now people are socially isolated again, and that does have and is going to continue to have a problem when it comes to organizing, just because Mm -hmm. we can't get together face-to-face. You can't beat the face-to-face. You mentioned that there are five areas that the campaign is focusing on. What are they? I think we already talked a lot about the income adequacy. That's a really big piece. And we also spoke a bit about housing, accessibility to housing, safe, accessible, affordable housing. I think I just heard rumblings the other day that they're reinstating rent control in January. No, it's one year, no rent increase. That's for sitting tenants again. If you're you're moving from one place to another, you can still get the jacked up rent as much as the market will bear. It's not much of a win. So we still need a lot more work around housing. One of the other steps was fair employment. So a fair minimum wage, you know, let's look at maybe a $15 minimum wage with sick days and family days, bereavement, you know, so people can go to work feeling confident that they have job security and that they can afford to live on their wage. Basic services. So basic services that could include things like digital access, dental, universal drug coverage, that sort of thing for the basic services. Elder care, child care. Yes, transportation. And then the last one we have is changes to our tax policy. There is so much need for tax reform for fair taxation. And there's many organizations out there who've done the work. I know I certainly need to learn more about it, but we've all heard about how much income is not taxed. Like, I look at it from the perspective when I fill out my tax form. There's like four different tax rates, and I can't remember what the top amount is. Is it like $120,000? And after that, the rate of taxation never goes up on individuals, no matter how much you earn. That seems a bit odd. But that's not the biggest one. The biggest ones are all the tax loopholes for corporations and the money that goes offshore that's never taxed. This is a problem. We need to have a fairer tax system. And if we did, I'm sure we'd be able to pay for things. I know people have challenged, often it's the new government, not understanding why they pay for legal clinics and for people to do organizing like Angie and I do and organizing for law reform. And the reason for it is that in a democracy, it's only fair that we get this little infinitesimal amount of money to do what we do, because the vast amount of law reform that's done in this country is by lobbyists paid for by very rich people and corporations. And obviously that law reform is done to pursue their own (laughs) interests. And so it seems only fair that, hey, poor people should get a little sliver of that so their voice might be heard somewhere in terms of what's fair for them in the law. So we definitely need some changes to the tax system. What's the campaign's plan to turn some of this into action? We have a plan and we need people's help. So you can go to the Just Recovery Ontario website and there's three ways you can help us. You can contact your elected official and let them know that you support a just recovery in Ontario. We have template letters, we have printable postcards, we have online tools all on the website. So it's very user-friendly and very easy to do. The letters go right to your elected officials. The other thing you can do is please share this campaign with other folks in your realm. Share it with other people, download the letters, 
tweet it out, Facebook, use social media and share it. And you can endorse our campaign. Please join us. There's another area where you can sign on as an individual. Or if you're an organization and you'd like to endorse this campaign, we really encourage you and ask that you do so. The more people that we can get on board, the more we can show the government that there is a lot of support for this campaign. And what approaches are you taking to build the campaign and to draw people into these actions? Talking to everybody we can, sending it to everybody we can think of, doing an interview like this, hoping that it will spread farther. It would be great. Just, you know, I think the term is going viral. We would love for that to happen. Yeah, we really want this to go viral. I think people realize that the time for change is now. Now is the time to act on it. It's now or never. So please join us. I know we're getting a lot of action on Twitter and Facebook. We've had a lot of organizations sign on endorsing our campaign. It's getting out there. And I think it's still a lot of just the old, old style email lists. A lot of us organizers have huge email lists that we like to send it out to, to, and then we just encourage people to share it. I think people are just ready for the change now. So I do think that this is just going to become more and more widespread. And it's all across Ontario. So you have to understand that we have organizers from all across the province working on this in their communities, building it up. So I think we'll start to see the momentum just continue to build. What does the campaign have coming up? I actually had a meeting for an hour just prior to this of our message group because we're talking about what the next steps are following the throne speech because there was some movement on some of the issues that we want a just recovery on mentioned in the throne speech, but there was stuff missing or stuff that was so vague it's hard to say whether it's, I mean, it sounds good, but, you know, some of us are a bit cynical about, yeah, we've heard things that sound good before that never come to anything. So the next push is trying to get people who've been organizing on a lot of these issues. A lot of them are single-issue campaigns because there's a lot of groups out there talking about housing. There's a women's group talking about specifically how it's affecting women. Racialized groups as well doing the same thing. It's time to get some reaction because we've had some movement, but I think it's providing us another opportunity for another push. We know we're facing more problems provincially, and it's tough because these answers are at both levels of government. We know how difficult it is to get them to actually do stuff at two different levels, especially when they're two different strikes of politicians or more, but we've got to get beyond that. Anyway, the next few weeks is responding to the throne speech and what we still need that's missing and how we press. And the next one is a pivot to the province because evictions are back on and the virus, like we're looking at probably a very dismal winter and we can't have people being homeless in that time. So it's a day-to-day thing. I wish we had the luxury of sitting down and planning, but we're also all doing other things as well. You have been listening to my interview with Susan Campbell and Angie Lynch of the Just Recovery Ontario campaign. To learn more about it, go to justrecoveryontario.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. 
Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 